0: Obviously you weren't here Thursday morning and I discussed my abandonment issues. I'm waiting am an alcoholic. I want to thank the committee for inviting me to participate in this uh, exciting event. I'm deeply humbled and moved to be invited to participate. With this table full of fine folk from AA that gave up their weekend to come join us in Florida to share our 54th anniversary of the Florida State Convention. Before I get started, full of myself, it's been a a very very enlightening weekend for me, and to see Bob and Betty Ann and Teresa and Ralph, Bob, Phyllis, Sandy. And hear the things that my soul heard this weekend. Has altered my life irreversibly. As it has yours if you're here. You may not even know that if you're new. <laughs> Man, I'm about a half a bubble out of plum on a good day. I, uh, you are one of the finest looking groups of disturbed people I've ever seen. <laughs> And I've seen a lot of disturbed people in my day. (laughs) I want to say that I've talked to a lot of alcoholics who have said, I found God. And I always ask them, what's that mean to them? And here's what I came to grips with after talking to so many that said, I found God. It's one word. And it believe, I believe it's predicated, AA is predicated on this one word. When I say to you I found God, I found hope. Hope. And based on that, God is in the house. Tonight. My sobriety days, November 8th, 1977. Haven't had any... Booze, pills, powders, potions, or lotions that affect my emotions from that day to this. However, if you see me on a freeway, you probably think I need them. I'm not up here to pretend that I'm a well man. I'm not. I am the best that I can be that God and AA have made me through a series of surrenders that are ongoing today. If you're judging me by what I was like last week, last month, last year, or ten years ago, too bad. You got the wrong guy. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps not. I love to drink. I do. I love Budweiser. Now, many of you probably drank all kinds of liqueurs with cute little umbrellas in them. Not me, Budweiser. And fine wine, Ripple. By the way, if you're under age 30, they closed that chemical plant down. Never saw a grape. I also like Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill, and we'll tell you why. I told you they were some disturbed people here. Now the reason I like Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill is when I puke, it looks like I'm bleeding internally. And then I tell you I'm dying from something that you heard all the other speakers talk about. If I get a pimple, I've got a tumor. And then you feel sorry for me and you buy me a beer. It worked every time. And I like a little Mad Dog Doocy Doocy too. Now I want to know, I want to tell you about a condition I got as a result of drinking Budweiser, Ripple, Boone's Farm, and Mad Dog Doocy Doocy. You might not have heard about it here in Florida. It's called alcoholic terminal diarrhea. I swear before God. I have diarrhea for six years. No time off. If you've had alcoholic terminal diarrhea for six years, you better have good decision making skills and split second timing. Of which I had neither. I also want to suggest to you that I fit in the big book and I love the big book. I want to put that out there before I go any further. I believe my sobriety must be authenticated by that book. I believe that. For me to be able to carry this message. According to Dr. Silkworth, this message must have depth and weight. Only you can judge the depth and weight of my message. All I can do is share my experience and hope that it bypasses the newcomer's head (laughs) and gets where it counts, right here, where the problem is. The problem's not up here. That's symptomatic of the problem. The problem is here, and I didn't know that. I almost died in AA because I didn't know the problem was in here. I've been in every kind of psychotherapy you can possibly be in since I've been twelve. I didn't mind it there either. I've got to add that. I, I liked doctors. I never told them the truth. Every time I was diagnosed psychiatrically, that diagnosis was 95% based on my symptomatic reporting skills. And it was always Bad. I fit in the doctor's opinion in the category of those who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders about whom forgot that. Oh, got something to do with honesty. About whom a whole chapter could be written. I want you to know something that I'm so blessed. That given my state of mind, body, and spirit, that I eventually found my way to you people. And you exposed yourself to me so that I could see me. And you didn't expect me to change now. You hoped for it, you didn't expect it. (laughs) I have a sponsor. And along with our theme of the green curtain out there, Follow your sponsor. Your sponsor is your friend. I've been psychiatrically institutionalized 17 times. I need to tell you that and get it out of the way. I was court committed by my own mother and father twice because they said they loved me. I told my mom I didn't want her to love me so much. (laughs) And after the second time, I was a self-sign-in 15 times. (laughs) I'm going to tell you why in case you have a little slippy poop. (laughs) Given the way I drank, the way I looked, the way I acted, and the way I smelled, I couldn't get a date on the street to save my life. But you put me in a co-ed psych ward. And I'm a pretty charming fella. (laughs) And I'm pretty clever, too. I make plans. Anybody else make plans? I make plans. So I'm eyeballing psycho-sober-civil on the unit. And I'm feeling lonely and I'm wanting some action. But she won't listen to me. She won't get get up with me. Where I'm in the psych ward, they bring the med cart right on to the floor. And you line up to get your meds. Well, I guy balled psycho sober Sybil, and I saw she's about to take some Thorazine, and I thought, here's my chance. <laughs> I watched her take it, and then I timed it because I knew the time was near. <laughs> I'm gonna make, I'm gonna bust a move. You know what I mean? <laughs> and about the time I decided to bust my move, my Thorazine kicked in. <laughs> Boy, that's tough when you can see it, but you can't get at it. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) Oh, my God. No matter how hard you try them feet, they just won't go along with the show. (laughs) I come from an alcoholic home, and I'm going to stay in line with the rest of our message carriers because I agree with it that my family did not, could not, will never make me alcoholic. Now, they put a definite spin on my personalities. <laughs> if you grew up in an alcoholic home like mine, you got problems. <laughs> mine started soon. In the book Alcoholics Anonymous, they say that some of us seem to have been born this way. And as I look back through my four step inventory process, I uncovered and discovered that I seem to have been born with an interesting predisposition that had no idea it was going to end up one day in alcoholism. The best way to put it is I was probably a potential candidate for Al-Anon. God bless you guys. You're glad I drank. I know you are. My father was a whiskey-drinking, barroom-brawling truck driver who ran illegal cigarettes out of Chicago and whiskey. My mother was the greatest character of all. She was a little German woman. that She was about 5 foot tall, 160 pounds, no fat wrestler. And she loved to beat up men. She did. And she was tatted out from the neck down. Now, this was 50 years ago. They used to call tatted women a painted lady. They'd say that to her once. She had a flying eagle tattooed on each forearm, and when she got mad at a man, you could just see the wings start to move. (laughs) And she had a full double-breasted eagle across the back. That was my mom. Gosh, she was fun to watch. She wasn't an alcoholic, but she sure liked to drink. My dad was the drunk. I have an older brother who's sober 29 years. I have an older sister who doesn't need help, it appears. Not my hula hoop, folks. And then there was me. My mother died, God bless her soul, still believing I'm not an alcoholic. She really thought I was psychiatric. She really did. She says, I'm glad you're sober in that AA, but I know you're going to come apart any time. My brother calls me a smoking volcano. He says, you're puffing away. Well, you ain't exploded yet, but it's coming. There was something odd about me, and if you're an alcoholic of my type, then you probably are sitting in this room thinking there's something odd about you, even if you're in AA. Many of us sit in these rooms, such as myself, saying, what's wrong with me? Even after I've raised my hand and said I'm an alcoholic, I'm still saying, what's wrong with me? And I don't know what's wrong with me. I want to know what's wrong with me. But when I find out what I think is wrong with me is wrong with me, I find out that ain't it. (laughs) And the little Pilly Willie they gave me didn't work. Just to give you a brief background, if you live in an alcoholic home, it may not make you alcoholic, but it will cause neuroses. (laughs) What's that mean? Well, it means my head really has a ruby's cube on it. And it's like clicking, trying to find the color code to life. And it's like everything makes it click, 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 click. (laughs) And my emotions are like a broken Maytag washing machine. There's no normal cycle, and I spend most of my life on agitate and spin. But I'll be hanged if you do, if you do, if you open the lid to the tub and pour in a couple of Budweisers, it balances the load. Pepsi never did it. There's something odd about me, and I can't, it, it, it is inexplicable calamity, when inside me I know something's wrong, but I can't put word to it. Nor do I want to put word to it, because I'm enveloped in this, this veneer of fear. I'm enveloped in this, this entity that can't say what's wrong with me to another human being. I, they call it acting out. <laughs> I love Teresa's talk. Talk about acting out. (laughs) Teresa, stay. I'm eight or nine years old. Just to give you a brief insight, not a long one, just a brief one. Somewhere between the age of eight and nine, I'm looking in my mirror. My mirror. Nobody's there, just me, us, we. I'm looking in the mirror and I'm saying to myself... Butler is too bad, pal. It's going to be a long life. And it's going to be lonely because you are butt ugly, pal. I swear I don't know where that thought came from. Mama Butler never one time sat me down and said, Oh, you you poor little son. Oh, you are so ugly. Just out of mercy alone, I'd put you back if I could that's not what my mother said but that's what I heard when my mom said things like Wayne I love you (laughs) I see you got the same mirror (laughs) you know what There's a lot of things happened to me in that childhood home that I'm not going to go into because this isn't the appropriate forum. Teresa went into it very well last night, and I can just say, right. (laughs) Things that happened to a boy that wasn't supposed to happen to a boy. My life was upside down. Now, there's absolutely no... Here's something that I want to share with you newcomers that I almost missed because I wasn't paying attention. Victims don't get to stay sober. We don't. And I want you to know I'm not disrespecting your experience. I am just suggesting to you that as long as I live in the past, I've got no today. And I sure don't have a tomorrow. And so thank God we have 12 steps to pull my head out of my past. (laughs) I told my sponsor one time I'm bipolar. I did. He says, I know it. He says, I've known for a long time you're bipolar. Really? Yeah. Yeah, you know what? One of these days you're going to be walking down 16th Street and you're going to hear the loudest explosion you ever heard. And I said, what's that? He said, it's your head popping right out of your ass. (laughs) And you won't be bipolar no more. I'd have fired him if I knew I could. <laughs> I was going to fire Barney one time, but he said, look around. Nobody else will take your case on, sport. <laughs> he says, I'm in it Larry's Oasis for you. I'm getting hotter by the minute. Eighth grade, they don't know what to do with me. I'm acting out. They call it acting out. I'm acting out all over the place. They send me to see... Sh- what's now known as school psychologist, And I'm being given all kinds of tests. And in the early 1960s, they came out with a thing called the IQ test. I heard one of our speakers allude over the weekend to their spouse, who is a Mensa. You may not know what that is. I do. Don't <laughs> tell you why I found out. I'm not happy about it. Back in the day, they gave me that IQ test with puzzles and pictures and questions. Now, if you score over a 120, you're pretty bright. You're a pretty big light bulb in the life of a light bulb. (laughs) If you score over a 150, you are Mensa material. They will pay you to think. If you score over a 180, stay home. You're too smart to drive a car. I want you to know what I scored. I swear to God, I scored a fifty seven. I didn't cheat. They diagnosed me retarded. And I got put in a retarded class and by God I improved. I rode the short bus for four years. <laughs> now I want to explain something to you. I want to explain something to you. Here's what you're dealing with tonight. We had Bob, successful contractor. Yes? Ralph, educated beyond his means. <laughs> Teresa, just a shining star. Bob! I want to rob him. And then there's me. I rode the short bus. So there you go. That's your committee. I'm going to say here a couple of things that took me by surprise. I'm not playing the victim card, I'm just reporting my experience. But when you're in the special place, by the way, if you have a child who suffers organicity, I mean no disrespect. I'm just telling my experience, I promise. I got put in that class and the bullies came. The bullies are here. I spotted you already. (laughs) Bullies are a dime a dozen. When you're in the retarded class, you're going to meet them all. And we had a a kid assigned to each one of us. There was 11 of us in that class. Each one of us had someone from school, you know, brown nosers, you know, wanting extra credit. You know, like the sponsor to get their, their sponsor coffee. They assigned a kid named Tom, and Tom had me all the way through school. His job was to keep me out of trouble. It wasn't hard. We didn't go to class. (laughs) You see, the big bus came by at 8 o'clock. The short bus came by at 10. We went to school, we went to lunch, and then we went to (laughs) putt-putt. Miniature golf all afternoon. That's the advanced education I got. I can putt. Some bullies got a hold of three of us kids in that special class on a Friday night. They locked each one of us in a hall locker on Friday night, and they did not find us till Monday. Those other two kids who suffered organicity came out the way they went in. I came out just a bit different. I had to come to you to find out I was harboring a resentment. (laughs) <laughs> Tom found out what those wrestlers did He tracked them down and he kicked the holy crap out of them Tom was my instant first hero And I started lying to Tom I learned how to lie I started lying to Tom Tom, they're picking on me again He go beat them up again They never said a word to me that came important when I was a senior, four years later. I have no academic education. And by the way, my ability to communicate to you from here is the gift of God in AA. You hear me? When I was a senior, because they, by the way, they don't give you tests, they pass you so in my senior year, Tom takes me to the senior dance. I've been in the special class since the beginning of the ninth grade. Tom takes me to the senior dance. I'm standing up against the wall, and I'm watching everybody dance, and I'm not quite sure what's going on over here. I see these boys, these girls, you know, the, some of the senior men invited junior boy, girls hoping to get their way, if you know what I mean. I'm standing against the wall. Now, my dad drank whiskey. My mom drank tequila didn't know from nothing about beer Tom walked up on me and he opened up his coat and he brought a brown bottle a long neck bottle out remember those? and they had a red, white and blue label oh, so pretty he said, here kid, drink this it'll make you feel better I would have drank battery acid for Tom I guzzled it down let out a big old belch and I said, Tom, that tastes terrible I want a Pepsi-Cola. Tom said words to me I'll never forget. He said, that's okay, kid. You'll get used to it. (laughs) Now, Tom is a normal drinker to this day. Tom is a friend of mine to this very day. Tom does not. He's only been to one AA meeting, and that was to give me a five-year cake. He's never been back since because he thinks you guys are strange. He's happy for you. He thinks AA is a de program. He does it. He does. I'm not going to try to straighten this thinking out, neither. Tom, here's what Tom meant when he said I'd get used to it. You see, Tom got drunk the first time when he was little, got a little bit disorientated, thought he was in the bathroom. He was in his bedroom, peed in his dresser, and almost went crazy trying to flush it. And he said to himself, I ain't never doing that again. And from that day to this, by his own word, he's never done that again. That's what he meant that I would get used to it too. And of course he would think that. He's one of those. You know them social drinkers? You can always tell a social drinker. They say stupid things after a half a drink. Half a drink. My sister, let me take you on a drink and spree with my sister. She orders a slow gin and orange that has ice in it, by the way. An hour later, it's still there. But the ice has melted and risen above the liquor. And now it's drowning the booze. Which, in my opinion, is alcohol abuse. <laughs> I am more preoccupied with my sister's drink than she is. And I finally say, Sharon, are you going to drink it before it melts? She says, no, i got to slow down a little bit. I'm starting to feel it. You've all heard that. I know you have. Just not in the mirror. I have never in my drinking career said I'd better slow down. Not even driving a car drunk. I'm starting to feel it. Somewhere between four and five Budweisers, I got so good looking I couldn't stand it. I did. My IQ jumped up to about 320. (laughs) Had me a plan. How many of you have got a treatment plan of your own? I know there's a group of girls over here that are brand new, and there's a couple of guys over here brand new. We know you have a plan. (laughs) Scott R. used to say it a whole lot better than I will, but all I can do is tell you what my plan was. Many of us have our own plan for treatment, for the treatment of alcoholism. And here's my plan, and this is why I have a sponsor to this day. Because I have a plan. Now, here's how I treat myself. I treat loneliness with isolation. When I'm lonely, I go off into my own room and think about it. I treat anxiety with caffeine and sugar and a six-pack of Red Bull. If I had any teeth, I'd grind them. And I treat depression with country western music. So I had a plan. I looked out on that dance floor and I eyeballed me a blue-eyed blonde dancing with some loser. I walked up on her and I'd overheard someone say, can I cut in, so I used the words I'd heard. Can I cut in? And she said, yes. I didn't know she was a junior. It wouldn't matter to me, I'm a retarded senior. She said, yeah. We danced. And then we danced again, then we danced again. Then she had another sympathy dance for the special ed kid. We danced the rest of the night. She started liking me. Some of you newcomers understand that. We found out later that night sex meant two people. I didn't know that. Listen, in this special class, sex ed wasn't a topic. They didn't want us having any clue about the potential of reproducing. And I'll have you know, the very first woman I was with is responsible for ruining my sex life. You see, I've I've been having sex since I was 13. I thought I was pretty good at it. She complicated the entire procedure. (laughs) Tom told me I had a great time. (laughs) We went back to class. It was only a few weeks from there. Graduation was like nine weeks away. And a, a couple of weeks before graduation, I got called into the principal's office. Tom come and got me out of the special class and took me to the principal's office. And there sits my mom and dad. And I look to my left and I see her, Bonnie. <laughs> <laughs> Euphoric recall is something, isn't it? And then I saw her parents and I thought, well, I wonder what's going on in here. I walk in and her dad flies out of his chair. He you have sex with my daughter? I'm not lying to him. I said, yep. (laughs) I said, can I do it again? (laughs) He lost his flipping mind. He's screaming at me, I'm going to do life in prison. I don't what do I know I'm in a retarded class. He's screaming, you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life if I ain't doing this. See, in the state of Illinois, if a boy 14 or older has sex with a girl 17 or younger, whether she wants to or not, it's statutory rape. And they clarified that to me. Their dad says, you're going to go to prison for 20 years. I looked at it and I said, even if you're retarded? What do I know? I'm retarded! (laughs) We got married. (laughs) They didn't think it was funny. And then a year later, I'm in the Navy and I'm in Vietnam. By the way, they were taking, they didn't give you an IQ test back in 1968. If <laughs> you raise your hand and say, I will, you're gone. And I'm not going to go into that, because this is not about that. Being in Vietnam did not make me an alcoholic. It put a definite spin on what personalities were left untouched. <laughs> I came back in Vietnam the first time my first wife and I got divorced. Shortly thereafter, I'm driving in a car. I don't know from a blackout. I don't know what a blackout is. Apparently, I'm in a blackout. And I'm coming out of a blackout driving a car. And I always said I would never cheat on a woman like my dad and my brother, anybody else. I will never cheat on a woman. That's the one thing I will never, ever do. And now I'm sitting driving a car, and I, I look to my right, and there's a woman in my car. I'm wondering who it is. Have you ever been afraid to look over there? Have you ever thought if you just don't look, it ain't there? So I'm, I'm trying to get a glimpse of who this person is without being obvious. And then I noticed she's wearing a flipping wedding ring. And I'm I done it now. I am with a married woman. And then I heard her say to me, What's the matter, honey? I may be retarded, but I know a term of endearment when I hear it. I said, honey, I look, this is a bad thing to say on your honeymoon. I said, Who are you? Guys, think it's funny? She didn't see the humor. And she hit me right there. She says, That's not funny. And I said, No, really, who are you? And she starts crying. Okay, who are you? She said, We just went to Palmyra, Missouri and got married. I said, There you go. So we figured it was God's will. So we, made, we stayed married for just one day at a time for 12 years. We're sober. We're in AA five years. I just got to tell you this for any further. I don't mean no disrespect. It's just what it is. I'm sober five years, and we're just doing the dance of love in AA, right? And one night I come home from an AA dance that she decided not to go to, and I caught her in bed with my sponsor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my sponsor says he wanted what you had. And from the looks of things, he was willing to go to any length to get it. <laughs> we got divorced 27 years ago. I miss my sponsor. I'm in and out of institutions. I go back to Vietnam for the second time because I can't stand the second marriage. I mean, I volunteered to go back to Vietnam, and i got to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. I was hoping that I'd get whacked. I was. I don't have the courage to kill myself, but I figured I can get somebody to do it for me, and just my luck, couldn't get it done. I come back from Vietnam, and I got off that ship in 32nd Street, San Diego, And our captain told, well, through the chain of command, he informed us that we should not wear our uniforms and medals off the ship, and I didn't understand that. I got off of that ship with three of my buddies, and we were loaded down with medals. I don't mean no disrespect. I'm not pretending to have medals I don't deserve. We walked off that ship and dressed blues. We got over to the 32nd Street underpass, and we were pelted with urine bags. We were pelted with paintballs, not the gun type, but... I developed another resentment. (laughs) I quit that day. The shock to my system was so great, I said, screw this. And we all went in town, and I got Budweiser, they got what they got, and we turned angry. I'm not blaming, I'm reporting. Do you hear the difference? I want you to know if you're new, I have no threads of resentment towards that at all today. Because of the grace of God, AA, and the twelve steps, but that made a turning point. It didn't. It didn't cause me to need a drink. It just fueled the fire that was already burning inside me that I didn't know about until I found you people and got a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. It took the combination of you people and the book. I don't know if the book alone would have done it for me. That's not my experience. But it was the people in the book. And I want to tell you about that. I came back and. I couldn't live with my second wife. I'd done some things I couldn't live with. I was so afraid I'd hurt my little girls. I moved out and I ended up on the street. I remember I went into Larry's Ways and started drinking at Larry's Ways. My weight was down to 146. I want you to know something. That's my psych report. My weight, 146. I'm six foot, three and a half. Tell you what, I weigh 245 pounds right this minute and I'm really happy about that. (laughs) But I want to describe a moment of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I'm sleeping in a dumpster behind Larry's Oasis. It's a BFI. I hear a knock on my dumpster lid. I was home. When you're living, when you're sleeping in a dumpster, you better know when they're coming to pick that dumpster up. But it was about midnight. I didn't know who was out there. I had to know. Might be a girl, you never know. (laughs) You know, trying to upgrade. I opened the lid of that dumpster. You know who was looking down at me? My dad. The same man who just a few years earlier put a 357 in my face. My dad was one of those guys that don't threaten. You know who you are. You're in here, I've seen you. You say it once, and you don't have to say it again for ten years to act on it. My dad was that man. And he told me that if he ever saw me around my mother again, or my kids, he would kill me. And when I saw my dad, I looked for the gun in his hand. And I have to tell you the truth. I was hoping he'd kill me. You hear me? And instead, he had a look in his face I didn't understand. He had a look in his eyes... ...that I didn't understand until I met you. He had this look that I now know how to put a word to it. It's called compassion. My dad had gone off and joined this cult. (laughs) Called AA. (laughs) And he told these guys about his whacked out kid. And he told him, Frank, we generally find that we can't help your kids. You can't help your own kids. But if you if you got to do it, you got to do it. Go try to talk to him one time. And he did. He looked down at me and he said, Wayne, I said, yes, sir. Do you want to come home with me tonight? And I looked around my little room. <laughs> and I didn't miss a beat. I said, no, thanks, Dad. I'm doing fine. He said, okay. And he left. I thought that was insincere. He left. It occurred to me he knew where I was. I got a little paranoid. Any other paranoids in the room? As they look around. Let me tell you about alcoholic paranoia. Look, there's, there's drug-induced paranoia. Where you're at the curtain looking for them, they're out there. That's drug-induced paranoia. Here's alcoholic paranoia. It's when I'm driving my car, and I think the car in front of me is following me. (laughs) Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen their eyes in the mirror looking at you? And you know they're out to get you? So I turn off to see if they're following me. Now I don't know where they went, so I go look for them. So I'm figuring my dad went to get his gun, so I bail out of that dumpster. And I want to tell you about how unexpected my recovery really is. Because, you see, I've done been diagnosed psychiatrically so many times that I have no clue what's wrong with me. I just like to drink. Just give me a Budweiser. I just want a beer. I jump out of that dumpster and I start that walk-a-walk that every man and woman in this room has made in your own way. If you're sitting there thinking, I don't relate to you. I never slept in a dumpster, you're in. You just joined AA. Because no normal drinker ever thought, well, I never lived in a dumpster. Maybe your bottom started from the front seat of that Cadillac you parked on your front porch (laughs) or that closet you came to in or that basement floor you were stuck to it's all relative it's all about location (laughs) Location. (laughs) I went on that walk and I went past this restaurant called Harvey's Restaurant in Moline, Illinois, at the foot of thirty fourth Street and Fourth Avenue. I went walking by there. It was now about two or two thirty in the morning. I came up on this all night mom and pop coffee shop. Remember those? All you some of you old timers. Remember those truck driver coffee stops where you go in and the, the seat is like a bar seat and it's wobbly and remember those? Weren't they great? If you're drunk, it's great, they don't know for sure. And I walked by this Restaurant, and I looked inside, and I saw this little 800-year-old woman slowly wiping down the coffee bar. I sized her up and immediately knew I could work her for something to eat. I just knew I could. I'm a worker among workers. I put on my best pathetic look as though I needed it. I go stumbling in the front door of that restaurant. She sees me, and she, like, makes a beeline for me. She's got a glass of water in her hand, sets it down in front of me. She says, what can I do for you, sweetie? I'm trying to work her it isn't going so well. And I went into action. I told her about the alcoholic home I lived in. I told her about the violence. I told her about the physical conduct that I didn't understand. I told her about being tied up in the basement as a babysitter. I told her about things I'm not going to talk about from this podium tonight. And then I told her about the retarded class. I told her about the constant humiliations from the bullies in school. I mean, I got tears rolling down her eyes. I told her about Vietnam and the terrible things I saw and did there. Tears were rolling down her eyes. And then I thought, I better cry too or it won't look real. (laughs) And I moved in for the burger. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know I found out later why she was really crying. My story didn't move her at all. She'd been used to it. She'd heard it a thousand times. She was in a program called (laughs) Al-Anon. Why don't you Al-Anons raise your hand? I just want to see where you are. (laughs) Personally, I think part of your program should be must-wear badge-identifying self at work. And I'm going to tell you why she was so happy I was there. You see, her husband Harvey was having a hard time staying sober. And she knew from her Al-Anon life that Harvey only had a chance if he had a drunk to work with. So she took me, I mean, she kept me around (laughs) until Harvey showed back up. I'm sleeping in the car out in the parking lot when Harvey shows up. I'll never forget it. I could smell myself. I know how bad I was. I didn't have any teeth. My teeth were rotted. Funny thing, ignore your teeth. They will go away. (laughs) That will help you get a date, I'll tell you. I'm like a man who's lost his teeth. I can't grow new ones. Now Harvey, I want to tell you about Harvey. Harvey comes up on me. He made me feel good. He's so ugly. I mean, I looked at him and I thought, oh, my God. What happened to you? Now, only an alcoholic in his cups could judge a businessman. He's got this nose straight with two golf balls on both sides. Remember? You ever seen that? It usually happens in the Midwest with winter. Winter. And his face had these red and black and blue blood veins running through his face. I now know it's technically called spider angioma, late stage fatal alcoholism. And I swear to God, when Harvey's heart would beat, his nose went like this. Thump, thump, (laughs) He shakes my hand. He puts something in it. It's a round brass coin that I knew wasn't worth a plug nickel. I opened up my hand. And it had these two A's on it. meant nothing to me. Flipped it over because he said, turn it over. (laughs) I turned it over and it had this stupid prayer. God grant me something. So I scanned it. It said nothing about money, food, shelter, or pill mill, tailor-made cigarettes. But I went anyway because a fool led me to believe I'd get something free if I went. He told me to go the next day down to 410 16th Street, Moline, Illinois. He said, go there about noontime. There's going to be some friends of mine there. You tell them Harvey sent you, they're going to help you. What I heard was money, food, shelter, and something. You hear me? He told me when I got there to look into the cellar, window. there would be a light bulb hanging on a cord. He said, if the, if the light was on, go in They're expecting (laughs) you. If he would have told me I was going to AA, I would have never went. He tricked me. He manipulated me. I swear I got there the next day about noontime, just like he said. I looked down the cellar way, and there was the light bulb hanging on the cord. Harvey said it was on. Gwen, it wasn't on. It was flickering on and off. (laughs) And I'm watching the light waiting for it to stay on. Now I'm think, think, thinking, you know, thinking. It must be code. I wonder what it means. And I'm out there going with the light now. I'm experiencing alcoholic and, and I And I'm, I'm waiting for it to shut off, you know. And I can't take it, so I leave. I can't go in. I went down to Larry's Oasis, moosed me a few Budweiser, got oiled up. Now it's about 8 o'clock at night. Now I've told myself, they owe me. I'm going back to get my rent voucher, too. I'm going back to get what I got coming. I got there. It was about 8 o'clock that night. Isn't that interesting? I looked in down that, that hallway, and I, did, I couldn't care less if that light was on or gone. I'm going in. And I went charging to that basement doorway. I'm 6'3"-ish. The doorway is 5'10"-ish. I ran smack into it with my eyebrows. The impact lifted me off of my feet, and I swear to God, I slid into my first meeting of Alcoholics Mountain. (laughs) About six feet inside the doors, this round table with six or seven old fools, must have been talking about death and dying. I slid right between two of them. And this old, crusty, ugly buzzer got up out of his chair, and here's precisely what he did. And they're all cackling, you know how they are. They all start laughing. And this guy growls at me. And he goes just like this. Slide right in here, you big dummy. We got a wrench to fit every nut that comes in the door. And by the looks of you, it's going to have to be an adjustable wrench. And then he says to me, my name's Barney. I didn't ask. My name's Barney. And then he said, I'm an alcoholic. And I said, well, hell, I'm schizoid. Who cares? (laughs) You'll never get me to say that word, anything, but alcoholic? I'm I'm depressive. I got a personality disorder, they say. I have a character disorder. Borderline personality. I was kind of proud of that. But alcoholic, not a chance. I just drink beer. He says, my name's Barney. I'm an alcoholic. And then he says, and I'm going to be your sponsor. I've been in AA less than 30 seconds. And he says, I'll be your sponsor. And it's the first ounce I hope I've had in a long time. I'll tell you why, I know what a sponsor is. I've had them. A sponsor is a guy who pays your league fees for bowling. A sponsor is who pays for your uniform and your league fees for Tavern League softball. So now we're getting somewhere. Okay, you can sponsor me. If you're new, I want you to know that that was a terrible mistake in my judgment. This guy is the meanest human being God ever put on earth. He was not nice to me. I could turn him in today for sponsor abuse. And for the next five years, I went to meetings and drank the whole time. I could not not drink, ladies and gentlemen. If you're here and you've never drank since your first meeting, good for you. I used to think that made you a better A than me. I used to think that meant you were more sincere than me. What that really means is, is your miracle happened before mine. That's all. I could not or would not see the AA way of life. And I continued to drink and I went to meetings. I swept the floor. I mopped the floor. They let me pass the seventh tradition once. And I paid it back. You know, for for five years I did that dance to death. And I want to tell you about why I believe in sponsorship. One of the reasons I love AA so much. I'm four and a half years drinking going to meetings. And I walk into a meeting late, of course. I'm drunk. I walk by my sponsor. I think he yelled it, but he probably whispered it. Dummy. I said, what? says, you know this program tends to work better if you don't drink? (laughs) You don't, sir. (laughs) Here's what I heard him say, you can't drink. And I reached down into my cowboy boot and I pulled that 357 out that I'd had tucked away and I pointed it at my sponsor's face and I fired a round off. I missed him six inches high. Barney was 5'6". Beat him been six foot tall, they say he's six foot under. <laughs> I came to the next morning. I was in Franciscan Mental Health Center in Rock Island, Illinois. It was my 17th trip to the psych ward. I was strapped down in the center of a padded room in six-point leather restraints to a bed on the floor. I was black and blue from head to toe from a little AA group therapy. Apparently I picked the wrong guy to shoot at. I mean, I had broken ribs, I was tore up from the floor up, nobody cared. I had a visitor that morning, you know who it was? Yep, Barney. He was like a maggot after a bad piece of meat. I couldn't believe he was there. They let him into my room. He's walking around. Now I'm naked. You know, they took away, the state had given me false teeth. They took them away. They was afraid I'd bite through the straps. Or choke, I suppose. Barney's walking around my bed and he's looking down at me. He's going like this. That's how they are. Mocking you all the time. Then he says, dummy. I said, yes, sir. He says, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> Finally. He says, I don't even know if you're alcoholic. You might just be nuts. And I'm laying there thinking, don't talk to me like that. I know where you live and they got to let me out of here someday. And it's like he had ESPN. He says, you know what, dummy? They're talking about keeping you and studying you a while. And then... AA overtook him. He says to me, he says, you know, I don't know if they're going to let you out of here. You're really done at this time. I don't think I can pull strings to get you out of here. You got trouble. And then he says, but if they let you out of here and they may not says, if you're willing to come with us, here's the man I pointed, to, if you're willing to come with us and do what we did and still do, I believe you can recover too. Hmm? How about that? However, he did tell me later he was glad they kept me for a while. (laughs) And then he went to board of psychiatry because Barney did volunteer AA service at that psychiatric hospital every Tuesday and Friday showing movies about AA. And they released me to him. And I want to tell you about. Well, I hope you've heard AA through this. Isn't this this is a living, walking twelve-step call that took place the AA way? There's no way to predict how any of us are going to get here. I got released to Barney's care, which frightened me. On November 7th I took what on November 7th Barney says to me can you go tonight without a drink meet me tomorrow and help me set up for the noon meeting I lost my mind I said Barney you know I can't go the rest of my life without a drink He goes like this Let's try it again Do you think you can go just tonight Now I know he's mocking me again without a drink, and I screamed at him, I said, look you old fool, there's no way I can go the rest of my life without a drink, he said, okay, how about midnight, I said, that's a piece of cake, (laughs) I made it most of the night, got up, got that, got going up into the Belgian village that morning, stole a six pack of Warren Budweiser, and I want to tell you how lame my bottom really was. I know Barney watched me there early to set up for the meeting, so I went through Belgium Village, swiped a six-pack of warm Budweiser, and I want to tell you how, how pitiful, pitiful my bottom was. I went to my home group, sat on the front steps waiting for Barney to come, drinking my beer. Had three cans of beer drank, and here comes Barney, early. Comes walking up on me like John Wayne, you know how they are. Doesn't look at the beer, looks in my eyes instead, causing me to notice the beer. <laughs> and he said, dummy. I said, yes, yeah, sir. He said, why don't you come in and help me set up for the meeting? And I said, I'll be right in because I've got three more cans of beer to drink. I don't believe you can get any more hopeless than that. It's not about how much you drink or how long you drink. See, alcohol was doing something for me, spiritual. It was taking a guy who... Skin is too tight, the world is too frightening, and making room for me, makes room for me. Everything in life is now tenable. But when Barney went in, something came over me, and I decided to hide those other three cans of beer in the bush. And I went in to help Barney set up for the meeting, and I noticed Tom, the newcomer, was at the coffee bar working the stand. You know, he'd ask Barney to sponsor him 14 days ago. Now I don't have Barney's undivided attention because Tom's working the stand. Tom didn't help me set up the meeting; he worked the staff. And every day, Tom would say, "I'm Tom. I have three days." Barney told me to pray for him, so I did. He didn't die. I told Barney, Barney, your God doesn't work. He said, why? I said, I've been praying nothing's happening. He said, what did you pray for? I said, I prayed to Tom die. And he said, well, maybe you're shooting a little high. I said, okay, so I prayed for him to drink. I'm sitting there in my loser chair and Tom's over there at the coffee bar working this down Barney's over there helping Tom work the stand. And all of a sudden, the door to the front of the group flies open, and this guy flies in the front door. We figured his wife did a drive-by. I mean, he lands flat on his face and bounces off the floor, and I saw him. And then I noticed Barney notice him. And in my first thought, oh, no. If he gets to him, it's two against one. I leapt out of my chair and went up to this guy. and I, I wasn't drunk. I'd only had three beers. I'm having a lucid interval. I literally picked him up off the ground, we'll call him Jim, that's his name. And he's he's wobbling and I don't know what to say to him now. So I just said what Barney said to me five years ago by the word. I said, Hi, my name's Wayne B. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I ain't said that for five years, I had no intention of ever saying it I know you join. Get commitments. And I thought, Well, I've done it now, and I'm gonna be your sponsor. Barney said, uh, "Barney heard me say sponsor, and he got out of. He abandoned Tom. Let me tell you, like like that. Had I known that's all it took, I'd have asked. I'd have sponsored someone 13 days ago. So I saw Barney come. I put, he's mine. I pulled Jimmy behind me." Barney gets this far from my face. Barney knew he held my life in his hands. He could have said, dummy, you can't sponsor him until you've worked all 12 steps. Dummy, you can't sponsor him until you've read the big book. But you see, he has experience. trumps everything else. Experience trumps everything else. Our program is based on what? Experience. Could you imagine... I don't mean no disrespect. I love the big book just as anybody in this room does, so please don't get your feathers ruffled. But could you imagine if Bill Wilson was getting sober? Bill Wilson got sober December 11, 1934, and the first drunk to respond was Dr. Bob. And he took his last drink on June 10th. From December 11th to June 10th, no success, right? Could you imagine what we say to Bill today? Bill, Bill, you quit talking to those drunks till you, till you write the big book. Talking to those drunks till you write the steps and work them. <laughs> Bill, that guy that hung himself in your house, that's not what we mean by hanging there. <laughs> you know what Barney said to me? He whispered in my ear, dummy. I thought, don't talk to me like that in front of my sponsor. You'll lose power. <laughs> but I responded, to my, I'm a bit of a dummy. I said, what? He says, do you mind if I co-sponsor him? I thought, no. No, you can't. He's mine. (laughs) I didn't have a (laughs) co-sponsor. You've had me for five years. It's my turn, by God. That's not what I said. That's what I thought. (laughs) What I said was okay. And then Barney says, if you two dummies... Expect to stay sober, that you get busy grabbing newcomers, you get them in here right away. You know what? The old timers had our back. They knew my life depended on working with a newcomer, even newer than me. And by God, me and Jimmy leapt into action. We were taking pee. That, back then, there wasn't hardly any detox or treatment centers. We went right to taverns looking for people passed out. <laughs> we tried to get people shooting pool, but they'd hit us with a pool cue. <laughs> they weren't interested in hey, eight lingo. And so we switched our tactic, and we went to the bars at 10 o'clock at night, and the ones that were passed out, they came to it at the midnight meeting of Elkoic Menon. Me and, I swear to God, me and Jimmy sponsored 37 guys in our first year. We was almost killing them, I swear to God. Good thing the old-timers helped us, or they'd have been dead for sure. But we were sober! Last November 8th, me and Jimmy both celebrated 32 years. You know I I want to tell you I know exactly where I fell in love with AA and I want to tell you where it was here in a place just like this boy if you're new and you're in your first convention please don't judge AA according to my presentation (laughs) (laughs) and if I made you uncomfortable Sandy's going to help you in the morning Barney Barney told me he wanted to take me to a convention of Alcoholics Anonymous Now there's something you don't know I still smelled bad in three weeks And I, I lost my teeth I went where are they were <laughs> I still weighed 146 pounds I was not a vision for you <laughs> He says, I'm going to take you to a convention of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's going to be 1,200 sober alcoholics. I want you to meet them all. Then he says, I'm going to buy you a new set of clothes. Now, we're getting somewhere. So he took me to his favorite department store, the Salvation Army. He says, if that bothers you, just tell him we went to Salvadori's. So this is November 1977. I want you to know something. Disco is out <laughs> at Studio 54. They donated it to the Salvation Army Worldwide. <laughs> he took me suit shopping at the cell. They had rows and rows and rows of lime green double-knit polyester leisure suits. so he picked me one out mine had mine had bright yellow lining with dark green tennis rackets I play putt putt, you know what I mean? we went over to the shirt department I always wanted a silk shirt, I always heard about silk, I wanted silk so I thought it was silk brushed polyester and his shirt had collars down to hair, remember those? And it only had two buttons, one here and one here. <laughs> and it had animals all. <laughs> I thought it was cool. He made me wear a flipping tie. And then he took me over to the shoe department where the only 13 and a half inch gunboats they had in supply were a pair of black and brown box toe Oxford platform disco shoes. <laughs> I went in, that how he's six foot three, and I came off six foot eight. Yeah. <laughs> he took me to the front door of that convention, stood me there, and made me a greeter. <laughs> it wasn't that funny. I want to tell you about the six members of AA who gave up their weekend to come carry the message to a knucklehead like me. A guy by the name of Chuck C. And he had his wife Elsa with him. A guy by the name of Norm Elpie. A lady named Dottie Shore. Tom Brady from Charlotte, North Carolina. And a guy by the name of Johnny H. And a guy by the name of Clancy I. And they thought it was funny too. <laughs> See, Johnny had heard the story about me trying to shoot Barney. So when he got up on me, he pulled me up against the wall. He's patting me down. I, I said, what are you looking for? He says, probably not what you're thinking. <laughs> 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 laughing. Clancy Cook walking by me. You know, he was out of character. He really tried to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> he waited until he talked. Chuck C. goes like this, I didn't like that at all. Elsa tried to get near me and he pulled her back. Dottie Shore kissed me on the forehead and I felt her lips moving in laughter. Norm Alpey, he laughed fast. I didn't have time to catch up. And when Tom Brady came by, he made it all the way past me before he busted out laughing from head to toe. And I, I turned to Barney and I said, God damn it, Barney! Are they laughing at me? I got tears, real tears rolling down my face. Are they laughing at me? And Barney goes just like this. Well, yeah. Yeah, they are. You're a sight to behold. And then he gave me the good news. He says, you know what, dummy? I said, whoa. He says, have you ever learned to laugh at yourself? You'll never be left unabused. (laughs) Clancy and Johnny got me. I identified. Chuck gave me the one thing that A.A. is predicated on, hope. Hope never has to run out. That's why you heard all the speakers before me talk about working with others. Because I rebirth my own hope in the eyes of a newcomer. Do you hear me? And my life has not been easy by my own doing. I no longer blame anybody for any handicap in my life. I take responsibility for my actions. And my failures to take needed action. Every speaker this weekend has told you how human they really are. Yes, we are. I'm not even a speaker. There's a speaker hanging right there on the post. I don't. That's a speaker! Don't do that to us. Please, don't do that. I'll speak for myself. Don't do that to me. I'm not a speaker. I'm not special. I'm a man who knows what I owe. And I owe AA and God everything. And because I know I owe God and AA everything, I, like my fellow AA and Al-Anons, am willing to come here this weekend and participate in your convention. It's a great joy to do it, don't get me wrong. We don't get paid for this. This is for fun and for free. And we do it because, they did something for me. It gave me the gift of sobriety. And without that, I got nothing. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Wayne B.